To Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single person, in this case, think about their work and unpack the rest. Today, we are talking about software, modern software, that is, the stuff that's hosted on the cloud and the startups busy building it. It's a topic I've been covering for roughly one to three to five billion years, most recently digging into changing investor preferences when it comes to the growth profitability trade-off, the massive slowdown in unicorn creation, and whether or not startup valuations are done correcting from prior highs to recent lows. Given the huge percentage of startups that build software as their kind of core remit, I've been reading and parsing data on the topic from Crunchbase and PitchBook and Carta and CB Insights and most recently, Bessemer. Bessemer is a venture shop with a lot of capital and investors that also does pretty useful data work on cloud trends, valuations, and data. So I've chatted with Bessemer folks like Mary and Elliot and Byron quite often over the years, but today we are bringing a new voice onto equity from the firm. And that is Janelle Tang, who, by the way, has a great substack called The Next Big Tang. Janelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. So glad to be on. And that was easily the longest scripted intro I've done in my entire life. And I wrote it myself and it wasn't that bad. So I'm giving myself like a solid eight. Woo! Okay, so Janelle, we have you on because you are a co-author of the Bessemer 2023 State of the Cloud Report. And as someone who has done these major data dives for publications before, it's a lot of work. So when did you guys start compiling this thing? Yeah, so State of the Cloud has been a multi-year franchise. And it's been around sort of uh, almost two decades now, starting with Byron Dieter, one of our partners who did the first State of the Cloud Report back in 2008. And I think at the time there were less than 10 public cloud companies and zero private cloud unicorns at the time. So obviously in the last uh, 20 years or so, that landscape has changed uh, quite dramatically. And, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about the cloud every single day. So I think that makes writing the report a lot easier than it seems, but it is a sort of full team production. And as much as, you know, the few investors sort of headline the presentation and are co-authors of the presentation, it really involves the full firm sort of rallying behind us, you know, including our marketing team, our data teams, our investor teams, um, and our PR teams helping us with that. And of course, a lot of our founders that we interview, we get their insights captured as well. So it is a a huge undertaking, a little bit of like a production uh, in some sense for us. Yeah. Well, you guys, I mean, let's not lie. Venture capital funds do tend to have budget for things. And so like you guys have like a better art budget than I do. And I have to say that kind of very politely pisses me off. Also, you should see my internal slide decks that I do for my team. They are uh, the inverse of yours because they're trash and they're not very pretty at all. But hey, it was funny, Zach, this year because of Gen AI, we actually um, used a lot of Gen AI tools to help us with the design and a lot of the images. So a lot of that were there. While there was a human generated component to a lot of the report, a lot of the visuals I can't draw. I'm not hugely artistic, so I do need to rely upon AI to help me with some of those beautiful uh, visions and sort of images. And we did leverage some of those tools. And we are going to get to AI actually at the end, because there's a lot of stuff I want to get through before then. And I'm just going to say this, this might get a little bit nerdy. We're going to try to keep it relatively high level and not get too far into the weeds. But if we can talk about SaaS, let's talk about it. So first thing that I noticed when I was reading through the report was obviously the SaaS occur slide. If you're not following along with us, essentially, it was a collection of charts showing how far public cloud valuations have fallen over a couple of different time frames. But as you and I both know, it's been a little bit rough for the last 
12 or 18 months. So my impression is that we're done with the period of kind of revenue multiples compression and we've reached what seems to be kind of a new stable place. But I wanted to compare that to your perspective. So are we done with the decline in revenue multiples that has been so brutal for so long? I think we we coined the word sassiger. We met sort of, you know, a 60% decline from the peak multiples that we saw at the end of November 2021. And in very much so, there was a decline from sort of, you know, outlier valuations. But in some sense, you could also call this a bit of a great normalization, where if you look at where multiples have reset, we are sort of closer to long-term averages that we've seen in the cloud economy, including the 10-year um, average, as well as pre-pandemic averages, given that you could say the 20 to 21 period with its hyper low interest rate environment was a bit of an outlier. So in some ways, it was a sassiker from the peak, but um, we sort of agree with your sentiment that it's more a bit of a normalization back to what we've seen in previous times. So given that it's more of a normalization to longer term historical norms, it doesn't sound like you think that there's a a reflation of revenue multiples coming that people should anticipate or look forward to, that this might be, frankly, kind of not, well, not the new normal, but the old normal coming back. I think in many ways, interest rates ultimately govern where multiples land, at least from a macro perspective, and that's sort of a symbiotic relationship there. And so if your view is that we will go back to hyper low interest rate environment that's closer to zero, then sure, you can make the argument that multiples will sort of go back to peak levels that we saw in 2020 to 2021. But you know, my view is that we are in an interest rate environment that's rising and rising at record speed. And where I think terminal interest rates will land is I highly doubt that we're going back to sort of that hyper low environment. And in fact, we'll probably stabilize closer to what we saw in the pre-pandemic period. So perhaps long-term terminal rates closer to 3%. So I've had to explain the connection between interest rates and the value of tech stocks and therefore the value of kind of revenue multiples in general in startups till I'm blue in the face. So I'm going to be very lazy here and lean on you. So Janelle, can you explain to people why you guys have a chart in the report showing a inverse relationship between valuations and interest rates? Yes. So growth stocks in particular are stocks that are fast growing, but perhaps are not profitable and derive a large portion of their cash flows, perhaps at a later date. And so when investors sort of write up a DCF model or try to value these companies based on a discounted cash flow model, a lot of the value is in a later date. And because as interest rates rise, that future cash flow is discounted more. And that's quite different from, say, a more mature company in the S&P 500 that's perhaps growing a bit slowly, but is experiencing positive cash flows today. In that sense, their future cash flows are actually discounted a little bit less and therefore their values impacted less. And this is why you see that in rising interest rate environments tend to impact growth stocks, including many of cloud software stocks, a lot more severely than more mature companies. Yeah, more mature companies, more cash flow today can spend more on shareholder return, buybacks, dividends, and so forth. And as we all know, there's a time cost of money and having a dollar today is worth more than having a dollar in 10 years. Amen. Yes. This brings us to essentially the Fed ruining all the fun because it sounds like everything was going great. Everyone was having a great old time. And then the Fed decided to raise rates faster than I think at least you and I have ever seen in our lives. And then the fun kind of stopped. And it sounds like you also don't think that rates are going to be you know, going back down to zero. So is there any good news from the macro perspective on the horizon for startup founders that are listening to this right now? 
Yeah, I think if you look at since year to date, the BVP Cloud Index is actually up 13% since the start of January 2023. And a lot of that is due to um, a bit more macro stabilization. So um, we sort of saw the March inflation print last week, and it shows inflation is easing a little bit. In fact, um, came down lower than I think most people expected. Yeah. So at least on the horizon from a macro perspective, there is more stability and my my big sense is last year was such an unstable year in terms of macro where folks didn't actually know where things might land. Will there be a hike here? What will be the terminal rates? And that influenced a lot of hesitancy in investing in the market. I think we've seen some of that macro stabilize, which I think is a big driver for optimism in the cloud economy. And at the same time, there are other vectors too that I think are providing a lot of optimism. On one hand, you know, a, a sort of um, unintended consequence of the pullback is that folks are now really paying attention to operational discipline and efficiency. And that's actually leading to a drive toward profitability for many of these high growth companies. So they are balancing that growth and profitability trade off in a more thoughtful manner. And yeah. I think that's driving a lot of investor excitement about the power of the SaaS model. And there are also new secular growth vectors, including AI and specifically generative AI that are very, very well received by the cloud world and are seen as a way to sort of grow the whole sort of cloud pie or cloud TAM, if you will, and really sure. bring in new budgets into areas that weren't previously touched by software or cloud. And I just want to start calling all pies TAM. Like here's a banana TAM, lemon meringue TAM. There's just- a pie chart as, as a, a lot of the times we visualize it. So yeah, <laughs> you could name it any sort of pie that suits your fantasy. Well, I mean, is there a pie that doesn't? I mean, obviously superior to cake. I think we can all agree Ooh, that cake. I, I don't know if I agree with that, but <laughs> definitely a cake. I think ice cream first and then and then cake and then maybe pies is third. Wow. Well, we can wrap this up now. And <laughs> thank you, John. No, I do want to talk about this changing investor preference and how startups are operating differently. Because as I think everyone's pretty aware by now, back in 2020, 2021, people were very comfortable with startups running very high burn rates, pursuing as much growth in the near term as they could, because essentially for every dollar of recurring revenue you could build, you got like $30 in market cap or essentially valuation. That's changed dramatically. You guys had some data in the report showing that from a six to one investor preference for incremental growth rate improvement versus incremental free cash flow margin that shifted all the way back to kind of a one to one. And then the good news is that now growth is kind of back to being preferred two to one is the kind of like macro clarity around interest rates, maybe not going up forever, helping ease the tension between growth and profitability. Or did everyone just overcorrect last year when they were freaking out because everyone was freaking out last year? Yeah, I think, you know, when there's a lot of uncertainty, there is this sort of flight to safety in a way. And in that sense, backing a business model that is generating current free cash flows is probably where folks sort of find themselves in a sort of bear market sentiment. But that said, again, the data set that we're running this on is on the BVP cloud index. And these are fundamentally businesses that are at sort of the earlier part of their S-curve. So they're not mature SaaS businesses and they do, they are category creators that are still growing. And so I think the pendulum tipped probably too much from six to one was definitely not a heuristic that I think was healthy, especially since it drove um, quite, you know, unnatural behavior where folks were trying to grow at all costs because 
you know, if the end goal is getting a great valuation that was what was being rewarded. Then yeah. in October, it slipped slightly in favor for profitability. But at the same time, these are growing companies that are winning share. A lot of them are building categories where they are trying to educate customers on new technologies. And that involves fundamental investments that need to be made in order to capture enterprise readiness and share there. So as a VC, I think we sort of recommend folks to really think thoughtfully about the trade-offs of what you're investing in and make sure that the dollars that you're spending are actually driving the gains that you'd like to see. And this is what we call efficient growth, more so than just growth versus profitability. We'd like you to grow efficiently where you're growing at optimal costs and not just growth at all costs. I think it should be growth at any cost. I think we all say growth at all costs, but like that doesn't actually hit the point. Like people were willing to spend pretty much anything to grow incremental ARR because it was just so valuable. Then obviously things changed. So you're right when we say that we're looking at public market data, which is a little bit different than what startups were dealing with on the ground. So at the peak of fear, back when the public markets were one-to-one growth versus profitability, how much progress did startups that you guys see actually make in reducing their burn rate? I think startups actually embraced this new zeitgeist and paradigm shift very quickly because it impacted their survival. On one hand, you saw, because of the market pullback, a lot of the growth stage companies that I work with um, saw frozen exit windows. And what do we mean by that? Where the IPO window came to, actually for SaaS, a screeching halt, where we didn't have any pure play SaaS players try to test the markets. At the same time, M&A, while sort of still remaining robust, did slow a little. And a lot of the M&A activity were sort of take privates or private equity backed deals. And even on the strategic side, a lot of deals were announced, but haven't yet closed and were taking some time to close. So that's sort of one dilemma that startups are facing. At the same time, funding markets also came to a slow where I think the last quarter of 2022 for VC funding activity was the slowest since 2018. So you're kind of between a rock and a hard place where exit windows are frozen. There's a tighter fundraising environment. And the only way to ensure survivability is to make sure you build an enduring business and manage your runway. So I think folks, unlike the public markets that cared more, let's say, about a valuation heuristic, I think for startups, it really was a matter of survival for them to be able to manage their burn and manage their runway in order to live another day because you didn't know when a lot of this uncertainty would end and you had to manage for sort of enduring business in order to survive. Okay, but this is all very ironic to me because I was just talking to the CEO of Softer, which is a no-code startup, and they let you take like Airtable and Google Sheets databases and build apps on them. And I think no-code's super cool, so I've stayed in touch with the company as they've kind of grown and expanded. And the CEO, Miriam, she doesn't need to raise money because she's been running pretty efficiently. And therefore, she's actually relatively attractive as a venture investment because she has been growing efficiently, but doesn't need the money. And so it sounds like VCs speaking very generically, we're like startups, y'all need to burn less money. And then startups did reducing their need for venture capital and therefore them becoming more attractive to investors when they didn't need the money as much. So it's, it's, it's like a weird, ironic cascade of advice and reaction and so forth. I guess maybe the best way to think about this is, is just like remaining runway because everyone had so much money after 2021 that they could put off fundraising for a while even for the efficient companies, is that coming to an end now? Are we getting to the point now when companies won't be able to delay their next capital raise? I think that 
sort of our heuristic that we like to use at Bessemer is like the best time for founders to raise is when you don't need it and when you can get it. Because I think that at the end of the day, a deal is negotiating on two sides and you want to be in the best position that you can. And when you have a lot of cash on the balance sheet, which a lot of high quality companies did because they benefited from the large pools of capital that were in the market before the pullback and they were very smart and efficient with managing their runway. They yeah. didn't feel pressure to say, oh my goodness, I'm running out of cash in a couple of months and I need to race now and I'm in a bad position. They actually have these huge stores of cash to either, you know, it's not even just about fundability, but also they were armed to make great M&A investments if they found good companies that they were excited about. And so they were in positions to not just operate efficiently, but also spend on growth as selectively and, and when opportunities came up. So that's that's one hand. And I think, again, if you're in, a, if you're looking great in terms of metrics, I think high quality businesses in tough times and don't in say cool it. times. <laughs> don't say it. Don't say great companies can always raise. <laughs> but, you know, like VCs flock to quality and high quality companies will always be built in um, you know, tough times as well as uh, there it is. full time. So, yeah. OK, yeah. okay but but let's dr- drill down one level deeper, because a lot of companies had a lot of money. We all know this. They got to kind of just avoid the. 2022 valuations crisis, the Sassaker, if you will. And now time has passed. A lot of time has passed. We are seeing a retrenchment towards growth, which is good. But I mean, I think that a lot of these companies that didn't have to raise are probably running a little bit thin. I mean, they can't have infinite money if they're still running a burn rate, which I presume they are because they are a startup trying to grow. So, you know, are we going to see, especially on the growth side where you spend your time, are we going to see companies that were able to put off fundraising for 18 months trickle back into the market? maybe the back half of this year? I think we started to see some of the, again, the sort of thesis that we have and we were telling our founders is like raise when you don't need the money and when you can get it. But at the same time for folks who perhaps are running out of runway and are coming back to market, sometimes they've grown into their valuation. Like you said, a lot of folks raised before the bubble kind of burst. So that was, let's say, two years ago now. And so they were able to gain high watermarks in terms of valuations. And some have, have grown pretty well, even with macro headwinds, and managed to grow into those valuations. And those companies, I would say, again, if you're high quality, good metrics, you could probably still raise at a an up round or sort of decent valuation. Well, th- there will certainly be companies that are running out of cash and feel the pressure to raise and might have to take even a down round or a flat round. And I do think we'll start to see a little bit more uptick on that. I, I don't think we've necessarily seen a lot of the peak of it. Again, VC fundraising activity was the lowest yeah. in Q4 of 2022 since 2018. So I think maybe perhaps in, in this year and you know, a typical startups runway for growth stages two to three years. So we should be starting to see that perhaps end of the year, like you mentioned, or maybe even next year. So for your, let's say your healthiest growth stage cloud companies in, in the Bessemer portfolio that are still private, has there been any uptick in people coming to those CEOs and being like, hey, do you want to buy some engineers? I think that, you know, the, the best in class companies that were able to raise again and have this sort of war chest of cash are still thinking of, you know, investing in growth levers and they are doing it very efficiently and smartly. But that's the position that they're in where they've managed their business well and in a powerful position, not just from a fundraising perspective, but 
they just have a war chest to, to deploy. Yeah. Well, I'm just curious about like what aqua hires will look like in a less rich talent environment. Because in the old days, you would do a little aqua hire. Maybe you get some IP, maybe you get a customer or two, but really you're just buying the engineering team. And that made a lot of sense when startups had a valuable resource inside of them, which was the people. And now when we're watching tech companies shed staff, like leaves from a tree in the fall, I wonder if we're going to see that kind of deal and if it's going to essentially snuff out the aqua hire market and therefore preclude some soft landings for startups that for whom M&A may have made sense in 2021. But now this year, they don't have an asset people want to buy. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great perspective. Even we have a team that tracks a lot of talent and sort of open roles in our portfolio, as well as talented candidates that are in Bessemer's network. And I would say two years ago, it was really, really hard for some of our portfolio companies to hire great talent, especially in very, very high demand spaces like data scientists or data architects, AI teams or folks with sort of ML knowledge. And definitely in the last year or so, we'll definitely see a pool of talent um, rise up. But that said, I think, you know, if you're a great talent somewhere and you have valuable um, IP or sort of valuable product or a valuable community that you've built, I think you can still be attractive from a strategic standpoint, given that if there are synergies, I will say we've definitely seen the available talent pool of very high quality candidates increase over the last year. So if you're going to be strategically relevant, though, I wouldn't ever call an aqua hire strategically relevant, apart from if the talent plugs into where the company already already fits. I guess I'm trying to figure out like what happens to M&A in an environment when there are no IPOs, antitrust is looming, private equity is active, but not as active as I expected, and aqua hires are kaput. Like, is there M&A? Does it happen? Does it go to such a low level that VCs can't return cash to their LPs because, oh my God, it's been a while now. And so I, I'm trying to figure out like what to expect for M&A kind of like you know, Q3, 23 onward. And I just don't have a good mental model yet for what I'm expecting. I feel a little bit blind, I guess. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question to ask. So on the floor of M&A, so let's say you're a company trying to be acquired for and just, you know, for, uh, for the sake of being acquired because you can't run as a standalone anymore. We've seen for that option, private equity deals have set the floor on prices for some of those businesses. But at the same time, you know, last year, even with the gloomy headlines, Adobe announced its intent to acquire Figma for Ugh. what was the highest, you know, multiple offered for any software company of scale. So I think that kind of proves that, or at least demonstrates that even in tough times, the best companies can still command a valuation premium. And yes, that deal's yet to close. And I definitely agree. I think from a regulation standpoint as well, there's more scrutiny. Well, that's because that deal's anti-competitive. Adobe's not shelling out $20 billion because they're like, you know what? This will get us into a new market. No, they're trying to stamp out the competition. That deal drives me nuts. Like, of course, it's good for Figma and all the venture capitalists are going to make a yacht off the deal. But like, as a consumer, oh my God, aren't the startups supposed to kill the incumbents, not sell out to them for a pile of gold? It makes me want to cry. I think what was so interesting about that announcement is Figma is a very beloved bottoms up company. And I think as Adobe looked at that deal and Adobe is a little bit more of a tops down enterprise sale company. And they're thinking, you know, there were synergies there and helping to capture some of that bottoms up motion as well. So from a business model perspective, I think it, I sort of understand the the reasoning there, but I think, you know, uh, I'm not on the ground as a, as a designer using Figma, watching, you know, my favorite tool <laughs> be, be acquired. And so I think there's definitely a lot of dialogue and, and differing views there. 
Yeah, I know that I have a view that's rather unpopular in certain circles, which is fine. Cause I, you know, I have three dogs. I don't need more friends. It's fine. But I'm, I'm like legitimately, this is a little bit off topic from the cloud report, but I'm like worried about how much power certain major tech companies have. And the reason why I'm concerned about it isn't for reasons that people mostly talk about consumer surplus and so forth, but like decreasing the amount of surface area that startups can attack. Like when we think about AI and we think about the the major AI efforts, like OpenAI and Microsoft are kind of a pair. Google's doing BARD and so forth. Microsoft's making its own AI chips. And I'm just worried that they're going to end up absorbing so much of the value that to let any of these major companies buy startups at that scale, I just wonder if the business world's tilting too much towards super giant tech companies and them controlling the future to a level that's going to make you and I irrelevant. I think that's a great discussion on, especially in the AI movement, like who captures the most value? Is it enterprises or is it startups? And at least I think the our view is that it does change based on what layer of the stack you're looking at. So in terms of the model layer, you've obviously seen all these big tech companies launch their own models or work with OpenAI or other uh, sort of newcomers to build up partnerships in that way. Again, Amazon just entered the right on cue, sort of entered the party as well last week. But at the yep. same time, we we have seen this sort of long tail, at least at the model layer, where there are a lot of open source models, there are a lot of startups coming out. So one view is that it could be pretty fragmented. But if you step a few levels up in the stack, for instance, at the infrastructure level or even the application level, I think there's a lot of benefit for startups to be building off so many diverse models at the sort of core foundational level. And I do think at the end of the day, a lot of surplus and value can be captured by innovations from startups and also can be captured by the end user. Yeah. So you guys had a couple of AI slides that I wanted to talk about because I was impressed by the message from you guys, because often from, and I say this with a lot of kindness, when I see reports that I've made their way through a lot of hands and had been edited. Sometimes all the edge gets smoothed down. So there's nothing kind of controversial, but in the AI section of, uh, of the state of the cloud report, you guys were talking about like speed to execution, getting LLMs in the hands of everybody. And really it, it felt almost like a call to arms in, in a good way. And so tell me more about the Bessemer perspective on why AI is going to find such a niche inside of SaaS and also why you guys said speed of execution is a big edge. We're in early innings, but we're already seeing real enterprise adoption and readiness for a lot of the new gen AI use cases. And there are tangible use cases where this technology is being employed now to solve real world business problems. And, And some data here in the most recent Morgan Stanley CIO survey AI ML actually rose this quarter to become the fourth largest area of spend for enterprises. And Morgan Stanley report also showed that AI is growing in terms of cloud spend, where it's going to grow from three to 9% in the next three years. So I think there's a lot of enterprise readiness that's there that we haven't seen in previous AI waves. Again, AI isn't necessarily anything new. If you remember, you know, back in 1997, uh, there was IBM's sort of a deep blue beat chess master. So it's, it's been around for a while, but I think what's really different is that there is um, justification for a lot of the excitement in terms of enterprise readiness. And another defining vector in this wave 
is that AI has the potential to become embedded on a more massive scale because it's been democratized either through open source models or even just uh, an API plug into many products. So you don't even necessarily need to build a whole in-house AI team, which you might have needed to in the past. You can really just point and click and get it incorporated in your product. So I think sort of that's where all the excitement is. And we really want uh, startups to try to capture as much value as they can. And it seems like speed is one way to sort of stay ahead of the game um, and then build up moats from there to be defensible. Okay. So Azure and AWS are going to offer, I presume, I'm going to be very generic here, AI as a service as part of their broader cloud offerings. If you have to pay to host your SaaS solution that you're offering as a startup, and you have to pay essentially an AI tax to have that embedded, because you're going to be paying for API calls at a minimum, does the inclusion of AI lead to kind of like gross margin erosion among SaaS companies if it is this pervasive and this much used, as you seem to kind of imply? We've seen the cost of AI already go down, at least in terms of, let's say, open AI reducing their costs. At the end of the day, I do sort of think about it from, this is like, cloud migration aware, there is yeah. some replatforming and platform shift. And maybe in the early days, um, you do have to make the fundamental investments, but you would expect that from a more mature marginal perspective, that cost to go down. At the same time, I think that thesis kind of feeds into why we think at the model there, it will be more fragmented because from a cost perspective, even from a latency perspective, um, data privacy perspective, it might make sense for some enterprises and startups to build their own models instead of trying to leverage existing LLMs or uh, models from big companies. So I think we'll see a lot of creative ways to sort of drive margin improvements in this space. We are again in early innings and I think the hope is that a lot of this cost will go down like any new technology. For instance, again, solar, I think, saw trend in cost to serve uh, coming down and then also with cloud migrations. Yeah. If you haven't seen the solar cost per like kilowatt hour chart or whatever the hell it is, go look at it and it will actually make you feel optimistic about the future of the planet, which you probably could use given that we're all a little sad these days. On the AI SaaS gross margin point, though, I mean, speaking of everything kind of coming back around, I was writing about this a couple of years ago and people were saying, look, you know, AI based solutions that which basically fancy ML at the time, they're expensive to train. That's going to ding your gross margins. But over time, you essentially have operating leverage and that'll help the overall thing make sense. I'm just worried that if you take the central core model, and I, I think I'm more pessimistic than you are about open source models competing with the rapid progress we've seen in commercial models. And you offload that as a as a line item as opposed to an internal investment, you're going to have a harder time driving incremental margin improvement off of that. And you're going to be more dependent on one of the major tech companies to whom, you know, they're not this rich by accident and they don't give away a lot of value for free, which is fine capitalism. But like it just it feels like startups are now maybe doing less themselves and more kind of collecting parts and building something if these AI models end up kind of where I think they're going to be. And that just worries me because I, I want the big companies to get taken down by new companies. Competition. I just hope we don't lose it. No, I think if I were to draw an analogy to, again, the cloud migration, I think as we saw, obviously there are sort of major cloud vendors, but there's also sort of a long string of providers that provide cloud hosting services to different parts of the market, for instance, you know, SMBs that perhaps have a smaller budget. They're also sort of big players that try to enter the space and have smaller market share. And so I think people will see opportunity, especially the AI gold rush, I think is very top of mind for folks. And I think there will be more entries in a space that can help drive some pricing. At the same time, again, using the cloud migration model, 
we've seen startups be extremely creative in how to drive down, let's say, cloud hosting costs. Like they're not just negotiating with these cloud providers. They are exploring alternative vendors. They're also taking advantage of credits and instances. They're leveraging tools to monitor third-party usage. And again, the sort of the ingenuity of startups never fails to impress me every, every time. And so we've even seen startups actually refactor their code. One of my portfolio companies did a systemic review of their code base to identify sort of potential optimizations to be unlocked and switch languages for microservices. And they actually boosted their growth margins by over 20% within a short period of time. And so I think startups are extremely creative about how they find cost optimizations. And I think that gives me a lot of optimism, again, using this analogy from the cloud migration example. Yeah, yeah, no. When a startup in your portfolio comes to you and says, we did some work and we found 20% gross margin improvement, do you say congratulations for figuring it out? Or do you say, holy f- what were you doing before this? <laughs> hey, you know, every, we'll celebrate every win and especially okay. gross margin since it sets the ceiling on profitability and sort of going back to numbers and cloud companies that sort of struggle to hit uh, 50 plus uh, gross margins really, really then struggle to our conversation about profitability to hit 20% free cash flow margins and yeah. and beyond. So I think I, the gross margin lever is probably one of the most important. So when we hear that being optimized, I think it always puts a smile on our face. Well, this is why gross margin matters. I, I've been saying that for years on the show and I've been getting blank looks from my co-hosts forever. Okay, we have to go to our lightning round. And if you're new to Equity Wednesday, this is actually Natasha's episode. I'm just once again stepping in for her because she's traveling. And apparently we do lightning rounds, which is an excuse to harass our guests and make them try to be entertaining on the spot. So Janelle, are you ready to try to be fun? Because I'm going to try to be fun with you. <laughs> All right. I hope I don't. Uh, I, I passed the test. <laughs> yeah. I'm still learning how to like go into like game show mode. Anyways, according to your Bessemer bio, outside of work, you can find Janelle trying to beat her personal record on her indoor cycling bike or jumping off cliffs on her snowboard. As a Peloton user and snowboarder, I resonate with this. Question number one, lightning round. Where is the best place you have gone snowboarding? Oh, Palisades, Tahoe. Interesting. I, for me, Beaver Creek, Colorado. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm California through and through. This has got to <laughs> gotta represent. Uh, and just because I'm now curious, why is that the best place you've snowboarded? I think because of KT22. So it's a, it's a world, world-class world lift there that you know is offered by Palisades. So I, and this is a controversial opinion, but I do think Palisades is the best mountain in all of Tahoe. And people can uh, love me or hate me for that. <laughs> and if people want to complain at you, what is your Twitter handle so they can send you tweets? It's at Next Big Tang, and Tang is spelled my last name, T-E-N-G. All right, moving on in our lightning round, because I'm not doing these fast enough. This is more like the slow motion lightning round. Must have artists on your cycling playlist. Ooh, Maggie Rogers. I know that's... Uh, in, yeah, I know that's an interesting run because it's a bit more mellow, but sometimes when I'm cycling, I don't want to go hard all the time and want to take it a bit mellow. Wait, you've never heard of Maggie Rogers? I'm, I'm literally pulling Maggie oh, Rogers no, up on Spotify Alex. right now. Okay, so for folks at me who don't know Maggie Rogers, <laughs> music style, vibe, era, what do we got? Yeah, she's like a bit of folk music. That's sort of her her heritage, uh, but matched with dance music. So I think a lot of it, and what I love about her music is she draws a lot of inspiration from nature. And you'll hear that in the lyrics um, in the tones. And to me, I love nature. Uh, and it really, really just speaks to me. And even, you know, we talked about playing this when I'm biking, but also when I'm skiing, I really, really love listening to her music. You were such a Californian. <laughs> and I, I say that as a former Californian and a West Coast by birth. Yeah. But you've left us. so. <laughs> well, 
you know, I, I followed my spouse. So, you know, Love yeah, that. this is where this is. I can do my job anywhere. This is where she wanted to do residency. So got to get on a plane. Um, last thing is what is the worst advice you've ever received? That I smile too much. Someone said you smile too much. Yeah, that I sound happy all the time, and I think it's it's just inherent in, in my personality. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll take I'll take it if that's the worst kind of a complaint that they're giving me. You know what? This fits into our California point because I feel like on the West Coast you can just be a bit more. I hate the word authentic, but you can be a bit more yourself, and it's kind of accepted. Whereas on the East Coast, people want you to wear like the right tie, and. I'm bringing slacker casual to the East Coast one tank top at a time. So far, I haven't changed culture much, but I'm trying to do it in honor of all of us who like to smile and laugh and just enjoy life. Love it. And I know folks can't see what Alex is wearing uh, on this podcast today. <laughs> we're, not gonna get, we're not going to get into that. Janelle, people can want to find you on the internet. You mentioned your Twitter handle. You have a Substack, Next Big Tang. Any other place on the internet where you have a home? No, that's perfect. Feel free to DM me. I'll reply. Looking forward to it. Awesome. And if you want to track the best from our cloud index and you can't find it when you try to search that, WCLD is the ticker symbol in case you want to track it. I do that three times a day and have for years. Janelle, thank you so much for coming on. We'll have you on again in a couple of quarters to talk about what's going on at the end of the year. But in the meantime, thank you. And uh, for everyone else, I'll see you in Boston tomorrow. Bye. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Natasha Mascarenas. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week.